special day we celebrate. Does anybody know what this coming week, what day that is? Valentine's Day. Very good, Macy. All right. All right. So do you guys, do you guys get, do you make Valentine's out and give them out to people? Do you guys do that? Yeah. You don't? Okay, a Valentine's Day party or whatever, okay. Well, you know what, um, do you, how about you? Do you give them out or whatever? Do you, you don't? You don't give out Valentine's on Valentine's Day? How about you guys? Do you, you give cards out and then receive them? You don't do that? Nobody does that anymore? No. Well, okay, in my day, back in the day, we would, we would, Write out Valentines. Actually, they came in this box, and you got all these Valentines, and you'd write out to everybody that you cared for, you loved, and you would give them to friends at school, and then you would get them at school from your friends, and 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 then you would give them to like people maybe in your family or whatever, but you'd get them back to, and it was always really kind of fun, you know, because you would tell people, you know, and each one of them would say something like, you know. You know, um, you, you're my friend, or I love you, or something like that. So it was kind of nice to get those, those Valentine's Day cards. And uh, I'm really sad that, that you guys don't do that like that anymore. Because, you know, that's kind of neat to get cards like that, where somebody says they love you, or somebody says that I care about you, or, you know, happy Valentine's Day. So anyway, you know, there's something that we have, and I wonder if you guys know, where God show, expresses his love to us and his Valentine's Day cards. You know where they're at? You know where his cards are? They're in the Bible. There's a lot of places in the Bible where God is sharing his love for us and he tells us, thank you and, and, and have a nice day and, and uh, I care about you and um, you know, I watch over you. And um, so if you look through the Bible, you'll find lots of Valentine's Day cards that we get each and every each and every day. We don't have to wait till Valentine's Day to, uh, to, uh, to see where God's expressing his love. So I think that's really important. Um, so let's go to God in prayer. Most gracious and glorious God, I do thank you for Valentine's Day. I thank you for an opportunity for us to uh, express our love for other people. And, uh, and we thank you for your scripture and your Bible and your ultimate Valentine's Day card, your son, Jesus Christ, who died that uh, we might live. Uh, we just thank you for um, your love for us. We thank you for your mercy and your grace. And we lift all this up. And, it's, and all God's children said, amen. amen. Okay. I have guys. Today's scripture reading is from the book of Revelation, chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations any more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. 
I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshiped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thanks, Sonia. Uh, let's start out with prayer. Most gracious, glorious God, we praise you and we praise your holy name. We give thanks to you this day. Lord, we feel dissatisfied in this world. We knew whether we were created for a better one. From the beginning of the Genesis, where you, O oh Father, promised to deliver a seed would crush the serpent's head. This promise was fulfilled in the Gospels. And now in Revelation, where we're at today, we see how your plan is played out. We ask now for your grace and wisdom to understand better John's words for us today and how we might apply them to our life. And Father, I pray that this message will be pleasing and acceptable to you. And it is through Jesus Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. This is a the third part of a four-part sermon series on the book of Revelation. Now, last week, John testified to what he described as a vision. That um, in some things that are occurring at that time and some things have already occurred in the past. Now, remember, first of all, this, uh, that John is seeing both sides of the veil. I have a picture of a veil uh, you can show that. Yeah, John is seeing both sides of the veil. You know, we've talked about veil before, that there's a veil between this world and the next. And when John sees those angels, those visions of angels and everything, he's looking on the other side of the veil, behind the scenes, behind the action, and seeing what's going on there. And we don't want to associate that with what we're seeing in this world. And now, and John is describing both the things on that side of the veil and on this side of the veil. And on this side of the veil, we're seeing all the destruction, all the plagues, like the locust, everything that's happening, we're seeing those things. These are real disasters that are really actually happening. Now before this, before this time, John was not a time traveler, okay? He was a first century man. And so when he describes something like the locust, he could be looking at something like this. I have a picture of a drone. Okay, he's... He could be describing something like this, but in his un uh, terms of understanding, he might know how to describe that other than a locust because he would be familiar with locusts and the destruction they cause. And so we need to, when we we're, listen about this book of Revelation, we hear this, we have to look at it in the context of a first, man's under, a first century man's understanding. And on this Sunday, and on this, you can take, get rid of that. And on this Sunday, for the first time, in the six chapters, John stands before the Lamb. 
And this is where we're going to begin today. Chapter 14. Chapter 14 unveils three more signs which focus on God's work during the tribulation. The tribulation is a seven-year period. Christ leads the 144,000 Jews that have been purified that uh, bear the mark, they bear the mark of the Lamb on their forehead. And these angels proclaim the gospel and again warn of God's impending wrath, which is right around the corner. And everyone has heard the gospel now. Everybody. God has been really patient. He wanted to make sure everybody had access and heard the gospel. And at this time, everyone has heard the gospel and has had their chance to be saved. And the Son of Man and an angel then harvest the earth in judgment. See, God has been very, very patient. He has waited and waited and waited. But in the end, but in the end, there were still many that refused to seek God and honor him to surrender to God. And so in chapter 15, the seventh sign appears. Seven angels emerge from the tabernacle. You notice seven is a lot, used a lot. Well, seven is a whole number in terms of the Bible, whole. So when I say seven of something, that means complete. Uh, Seven angels emerge from the tabernacle where the God's law is stored, and they pour out seven bowls of judgment that contain a full measure of God's wrath. And this is all on those that are left on earth. And these seven bowls brought out um, have seven different plagues. And it's really similar to, you remember in Exodus, the plagues of Egypt. These, these uh, plagues that are poured out on the earth and God's full of God's wrath are similar to these plagues. And the people there were in agony and they cursed God and they refused to repent. And this refusal, though, is common in history. We've seen that a lot. You know, has anybody heard of Voltaire? He was an atheist back uh, in the 17th, 18th century, and he um, was one of the most aggressive antagonists against Christianity in his lifetime. And he wrote many many things to undermine the church. And he once said, in part, in 20 years, Christianity will be no more. And he was doing everything he could to stop it. But he was not successful, was he? And on his deathbed, as he lay in agony, a nurse who attended him was reported to have said, for all the wealth in Europe, I would not want to see another atheist die. He was in intense agony. Now what a difference faith makes. Now remember the last words of Stephen, the first martyr, the Christian martyr, who was being stoned to death And he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Lord, do not charge them with this sin. It's different, isn't it, for Christians when they die? All this suffering takes place while Satan and the two beasts still reign on earth. They still are reigning on earth. If Satan had his way about it, he wouldn't want anybody to suffer. He wouldn't want anybody to anguish over anything. He would like to have zero suffering on the earth. Because you know what happens? People are more apt to live apart from God when there's no suffering in their life. It's in times of stress-free living is where we're more apt to sin. And it's in times of suffering 
that leads people to the Lord. But let's face the truth. Jesus, Jesus in his life faced a lot more suffering than we'll ever see. There's nobody on earth that ever experienced more suffering than Christ. He, remember, he was, he was whipped. His back was completely torn to shreds. He'd been punched in the face. He had a crown of thorns. And this is, he had a crown of thorns stuck on his head right on the eve of Lent. We were hearing about this. The Romans made fun of him, insulted him. He lost a lot of blood. He was desperately weak and thirsty. And they took spikes and they drove them into his wrist and his feet and slammed the cross upright allowing the full weight of his body uh, onto those spikes. And not only did he pay a, a physical cost for us, he also paid a mental cost with all that insults, all those um, verbal abuses that were hurled at him. And on top of that, the spiritual cost. You know, he had always been, he'd never had any separation from God the Father or the Holy Spirit. But at this time, the Father turned his back on the Son. The first time that's ever happened. The only time that's ever happened. Can you imagine the, how that would have felt spiritually to have, be, have your Father, your love of your life, turn his back on you? That would be agonizing. There's, no, there's nothing I can imagine that could be worse than that. He had experienced a separation. So, so let's hold on to that for a minute. With that in mind, we need to continue on with the tribulation. Another feature of the tribulation period is a mighty religious political force that it says in chapter 17, it's, uh, it's called the great harlot or the, the, uh, the great Babylon. And what we think, what the experts think, the scholars think, is that it's some... It's like, um, it's like the Roman Empire that's in charge of many of the nations on the earth. And um, it's kind of a revived Roman Empire. It could be, you know, in the U.S., it could be anywhere. I'm not sure where the local, what, what, um, where it's located at. But the influence and the wealth and the lavishness of this Babylon is um, amazing. And guess what happens? In the second half, and in the first half of the tribulation, the first three and a half years, it thrives. But in the second half of the tribulation, the Antichrist, believe this or not, the Antichrist, the one, there's two beasts, the one in the sea, which is the Antichrist, and the one on land, which we think is the, it's the false prophet that was the, um, uh, was the propaganda minister for the Antichrist. So the Antichrist... In the second half of the tribulation, the, second th the last three and a half years of the tribulation, the Antichrist actually defeats Babylon. Two evil forces clash heads and Babylon goes down. And all of heaven shout with glory. They erupt in praise to God because Babylon has been defeated. And now this is a signal. When Babylon goes down, this is a signal for Jesus to come to earth. To, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a signal for the marriage supper, the feast. You know, we, I, we, uh, during communion, we always talk about the heavenly feast where we all come together. 
This is the time for that. Christ is going to receive its bride, the church. But before that happens, he has to gather his forces and fight the battle of Armageddon. And we know about it. We've heard of Armageddon before. But you know what? It's not really a fight. Because, you know, fights, you know, there's people on both sides win, right? This is a total devastation. Christ comes down with his mighty, uh, on a white horse, and he's wielding a sword of judgment, and he totally wipes out the evil forces. And he takes the Antichrist, that beast from the sea, and he takes the, the false prophet, the beast from the land, and he throws him into the lake of fire. And then he, what happens to Satan? It's at this time, Satan is locked up. Sonia read that. The Satan is locked up for a thousand years, but not by Christ. You know, people think that Satan is this big power, that he's opposite of God or something. He has a lot of power, but he really doesn't. An angel locks him up. An angel binds him for a thousand years. And so that is when what we know as the rapture happens, occurs. Now, it doesn't say anything in Revelation about the rapture. It doesn't say anything about Antichrist in Revelation. But that's what we believe is, is the rapture. The rapture, the only place that the rapture's talked about is 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 and 17, where it talks about all the people on earth whether, that, are, that are believers, whether they've passed on or if they're still alive, they are caught up into the sky and they meet Jesus coming down. And, you know, before I studied Revelation, I always thought that at that time we'd go on up to heaven together, but we don't. We turn around and come right back down here and we reign with Christ for a thousand years. And um, that is where we end today. The suffering is over. All that is left is a second death for those who refuse to acknowledge God. So, one question I have for you is, um, would you acknowledge God? Have you acknowledged God in your life? If you lost it all, would you lament or repent? I hope you all would repent. How would you respond? How would you acknowledge God? Winston Churchill once said, men occasionally stumble over the truth, but most of them pick themselves up and hurry off as nothing happened. I myself have stumbled before, one time seriously. I've shared this before. There's one story I want to share with you today. Um, because we have a lot of visitors today, and, and a lot of people haven't heard this story. I shared it at Asbury last year during Lent, and I thought I would share it today. Um, this is not my first career. Okay, my first career was I was in business. I was, as most of my adult life, I've been in business, and I was a business owner. I had a steel construction business. Um, it was in Hiawatha, and some of the projects that I was involved in were the Tree of Five Seasons. I supplied the stainless for that. Uh, we even actually had the contract to put it up. And then uh, Cedar Rapids Colonel's Ballpark. Um, all that steel you see out there, that's all of, from my uh, business. And then Xavier High School and Corridge Mall, all those buildings at Corridge Mall, those trusses, those fancy trusses when you see when you drive by, those are all from my shop. 
Now, during that time as an owner of a thriving business, I was very active in my church at St. Paul's and later at Shuyville United Methodist Church. And during that time, I was also, also very active at Make-A-Wish. Um, I sponsored a wish child early on, and then I got a call from the Gazette not too long after that. It's probably about 94, 1994, and I got a call from them, and they wanted me, um, the Gazette had dropped out. They were dropping out of um, being the sponsor for this golf tournament, and they were looking for a sponsor, a major golf sponsor, to sponsor this golf tournament every year. And I said, yeah, I'd do it, because I'd been involved in that golf tournament and uh, been on the uh, committee, so I said, sure, I would do that. And so um, we were very active in... Um, raising money for Make-A-Wish, and, and all this money would go towards wishes. And every year we would, we would have a, it was barren fruit. I mean, God blessed that because every year we would get thirty-five dollars to $45,000 in this golf outing. And it would all go to business, uh, it would all come from businesses, most businesses, and then it would go out to these Make-A-Wish children. And I would take part in that off uh, as well. But then in 2003, Nine years, ten years after uh, I started doing that, in 2003, my business failed. It was a lot of things that entered into it that um, caused it to fail. And it was, it was one of many unfortunate blows I had in the early 2000s. So in 2004, I couldn't sponsor this golf outing, this Make-A-Wish golf outing. But I could participate in it, and I was. I was very active in participation, but I couldn't lend myself... I couldn't give them any money because I was broke. I didn't have a dime. And so, so, uh, so on the day of the golf outing in 2004, it was at uh, Hunter's Ridge in Marion. Um, I was in the clubhouse, and it was really a hard thing for me to be there and not participate like I wanted to and contribute money and, and everything. And it was really, I was overcome by grief. And you know, like most men, I didn't want to see anybody see me cry, okay? Most men are like that, I think. Uh, and uh, so what I did was I left the clubhouse. I left the clubhouse and I went outside out the back by the parking lot so I could kind of, you know, cry. And, um, and, I, and I looked over and they were putting pictures of wish children on each golf cart. I have a golf cart here. You guys know what one looks like. And they were putting them up in the window of the golf carts. And they were wish children. And, and the wish children were from the last 15, 20 years that had been sponsored in Iowa. Okay? And these two, and so I went over there and I asked these guys, I said, what are you doing? And, and, and he said, well, you know, we're, we're told to put these, these pictures on each cart. And so I went over to my cart, because I had my golf clubs on there already and my name's on it. Um, and there was a picture of my wish child. And I thought, oh, that's so cool. You know, and I, so I went over and I asked, I asked him again. I says, they're probably thinking, get, get rid of this guy. I said, how did you know that was my wish child that's on my cart? And they looked at me like I'm crazy. And they said, we're just told to put pictures on, we're from Des Moines, we're, helping out, we were told to put pictures on these cards. And that's, that's all we were told to do. There was no, no way to indicate that that was my wish child. Well, a chill went up my spine at that time. 
I was completely lifted up. I was no longer going to cry anymore because I realized that God was looking down on me and that he was showing me his amazing love for me. There was no way for these people to know which picture was mine of a wish child. They didn't know me from Adam. I absolutely lost it. Of all the golf carts there that day and all the children that were sponsored, they picked the one child. And I checked all the golf carts to see if there was any with another wish child on my, that was mine that I sponsored. And that was, there wasn't. That was the only one. Well, what kind of God does that? What kind of God does that? And I, I, brought, I wanted to show you guys, maybe demonstrate, because I wanted to do the, figure the odds. I'm a math guy, and I want to know what the odds are. Well, there's 60 golf carts, okay? So that's one out of 60, okay? That's, that's just over 1%, but it's not any more than 1% chance for that. And so what I did is I brought golf balls. There's 60 golf balls here, and I'm going to take these out. I shouldn't, I, you know, I was going to just dump them, but I'm not going to do that because the ushers might trip over the balls. So I'm not going to do that. I'll just roll them out like that. There's 60 golf balls. So now, that's a little bit over 1% chance to pick out the right golf ball. That would be my golf cart. And then I started thinking about it. Well, wait a minute. There's two variables here. The other variable is that picture. Now, they had more than 60 pictures. They had about 100 pictures. But they just they didn't know how many carts they were going to, uh, pictures they were going to need because they, they didn't know how many carts there were going to be people golfing. So they had about 100 pictures. And so I'm just saying, okay, I'm not gonna, I don't have 100 T's here. I have 60 T's. So I'm just going to say of those 60 pictures, one containing my wish child, pick the right one to put the right ball on that. Now your odds are 1 in 3,600 to find it. That's, in, that's impossible. 1 in 3,600 to find the right tee and the right golf ball. Well, that's the kind of God we have. He doesn't, he's not just concerned about salvation of our souls, sisters and brothers. He's concerned about the small things in our lives. Those times when we're just feeling bad, okay? Like I was on that day in 2004. So how do you view God? Now we've been talking about salvation, and we've been talking about end times and revelation that he's either too preoccupied with the redemption of the world to care about us, care about something, some stuff that's going on in our world right now. But he does. He cares about each one of us, and he is patient with all of us. Do you have minor details in your life that you don't want to bring to him because you're thinking, well, he's got bigger fish to fry. He doesn't have time for my little stuff. No, he wants all of it. He wants everything you have. He has time to care and listen to you, sisters and brothers. Now, I could have cursed God when things didn't turn out all right and I lost my business, but I didn't. We don't need to turn away from God when things don't go our, our way because you know what? He never gives up on us. He never gives up on us. In fact, what we should do um, is we should come running to him. Now, I have a movie clip. Now, I want to explain this movie clip before we get into it. The movie clip is for the love of the game. And this picture 
is washed up. I mean, he's, he's really on his last, his last time around. His arm is sore, but he's pitching a perfect game. And he's pitching this perfect game, and he, his, he's gone through like eight innings, and he can't, his arm is like a noodle now. He cannot go any further. And so he hesitates, and the catcher is going to come out, and the catcher is going to say, but we're behind you, okay? You are not going to fail. We are going to get you through this, the team, meaning the team. And I think of this in terms of the Holy Trinity. I think of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that are with us, and we're going to get it through. Whatever we have going on, we're going to get through it because the Holy Trinity is not going to let us fall. So let's go ahead and play this clip. How you doing, Ace? Anybody been on base? Nobody. Nobody? This I ain't seen much of. Huh. Me neither. Chappie? I never have. What's the matter? I don't know if I have anything left. Chappie, you just throw whatever you got, whatever's left. The boys are all here for you. We'll back you up, we'll be there. Because Billy, you don't stink right now. We're the best team in baseball right now, right this minute, because of you. You're the reason. We're not going to screw that up. We're going to be awesome for you right now. Just throw. My favorite magazines is a Good News magazine, and they just had their 50th anniversary issue. And on the 50th anniversary cover, there are the words, Relentless Hope. Relentless Hope. Sisters and brothers, that's what we should choose for our lives instead of turning away when things get tough when we have hard circumstances in our life. God is holy and just, and he works invisibly behind the scenes. Even times when we can't understand what's going on, we are to embrace that relentless hope in our lives, and that should be our expectation going forward. Now, I'm sure that when God looks on our life, he looks on with love, first and foremost, each one of us. But when we grieve, you better believe it, he grieves with us. When we suffer, he suffers with us. And a lot of us need to see this and understand the depth of God's love. God doesn't just care and love you by offering you salvation. He wants to love you and care for you even in the smallest details of your life. So again, how will you respond? 
the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.